Morning, birds. You know, I think we have a interesting way to to kick off the show today. Are you ready? Right. We're gonna uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna put everybody in a spaceship right now. Atlantis now in control of the countdown. There we go. It's exciting. What? There we go. Firing chain is armed. All right, there we go. Sound suppression water system activated. Yeah. Okay. Check. T minus ten, nine, yeah. eight, seven, six, five, three, two, one, zero, and lift off of space shuttle Atlantis. Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. Or good evening. This is Sparks, and I would like to welcome you to the weekend pirate radio special oh the chicago radio pirates morning show it's the chicago radio pirates program special here at split.network enjoy see but we're interested in this white area once again maybe there's another little cloud that lives in our world right along there wherever you think they should be then that's exactly where they should be just wherever. And just use the old little one-inch brush and just I'm making tiny little circles. Just tiny little circles. You know this guy, Bob Ross. I love Bob Ross. In fact, I'd like to be Bob Ross. But if I can't be Bob Ross, I'd like to be Stephanie Clark, who uh, joins us this morning. Uh, Stephanie's an art therapist. Stephanie, hello. 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 You know Bob Ross. I know you do. Love Bob Ross. Yeah. yeah. Big fan. <laughs> uh, happy little clouds. Um, Stephanie joins us again. Stephanie was on a couple of months ago. I was just thinking, uh, Stephanie, wow, things were so different then. Um, we were, we really were in a, uh, a major lockdown. Nobody could go anywhere. And uh, I guess that's my first question. Um, are things, uh, and, and uh, Stephanie's over at Rush in uh, Chicago here. Are things loosening up for, uh, for you? Yeah, a little bit. I was just thinking last time we spoke, I, I remember I was in my apartment. Um, so I was still working at home at that time. And um, now I'm in the office, so we're kind of back to the office every day. Um, we, we, we are still doing outpatient sessions virtually, but we do have folks coming in for our intensive outpatient program. Um, and so that hasn't changed. We've been bringing those folks in for a while now. So are you sorry to have to leave your house? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's been really nice to see my coworkers and, and be in the office again in the art room here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some days I just, I would rather stay home. Um, Stephanie's an art therapist. Why don't we take it from the top? You work, I know, with uh, veterans and yeah. uh, men and women and other people that have, you know, have traumas and stuff like that. And the idea is that art uh, helps them. So um, yeah, yeah what, what about that? Um, what about the art helping them? Yeah, or? yeah. Tell, tell us yeah. more about that. that uh... Yeah. So um, art therapy can be the main form of therapy, but, but really here how we have it set up at our own home program at Rush is that it's an adjunct therapy. And so folks are, are either in our intensive outpatient program, the IOP, um, where they up from all over the country and, and are treated um, and get their PTSD treated. And so in that program, they have individual therapists and other group therapies and mindfulness, yoga, and then art therapy. Um, 
And so the art therapy group is just a nice kind of change of pace for them because their individual therapy is um, cognitive processing therapy, CPT. So they're, they're doing a lot of cognitive work, challenging their thoughts and so on. And then they get to come into the art room. And it's not like arts and crafts where they're like gluing macaroni to paper. <laughs> it's, uh, not, it's, it's not, huh? <laughs> no. no. They're still really addressing what's come up for them during the two weeks they're here and what's come up for them in, in therapy. And they're addressing the trauma they've experienced, but in a different way. And so they're doing it in a visual way. Um, and for a lot of them, it's it's a nice relief from the other parts of the program. And they're also working through things that they aren't working through in individual therapy. Um, so it, it ends up being a nice adjunct for them. I would think after wor- uh, working on, uh, you know, with cognitive therapy, which is, you know, th- trying mm-hmm. to remember stuff, I, I would think uh, picking up a paintbrush might be kind of a break. Do they, do they, yeah. do, do they dig that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really nice break for them. And sometimes the groups want to come in and just make art and be silent, which um, I support and, and, and totally understand because they are doing a lot of talking and cognitive heavy work. Um, it's hard for me because I like to chit-chat with, with us and get to know them and um, and engage a conversation with them. But So more, more times than not, they come in and you can just see a shift in their body language even. Um, because they come into the art room, so they get to change the scenery that they're in. They're not in an office or their group room, um, and they get to laugh. And even though they're working on their artwork, which is usually very intense subject matter, mm-hmm. um, we get to listen to music and laugh and, and talk, and um, it's a really nice break for them. Stephanie Clark here. Stephanie's an art therapist. We're talking about the uh, our constituents. So Stephanie. I'm guessing you don't, you don't, you know, you don't walk around and peer over their shoulders and say, you know, that leaf is way too big, right? <laughs> no, not like an art class, no. <laughs> no. So it sounds pretty mellow. Um, do they? I'm, I'm curious. I mean, to say what kind of experience do they have? Um, I don't know. I guess everybody's had a crayon in their hand, but I, are, is it true that most of these people have not had a lot of art experience? Yeah, so some of them have. A lot of times they come in. And they're open to the experience because they've already been prepared and prepped for trying new things before they come. But a lot of people say, well, I haven't done art since elementary school. And so mm-hmm. they are, are feeling pretty anxious, you know. Um, making art in front of people is a very vulnerable thing. People are afraid of being judged and whatnot. Um, so I, I ask them right away what their experience is so I know who might be feeling anxious and who might be just excited to get started so that I can go over and check in on those people and have a conversation and, and help them relieve some of the anxiety and help them get started. I know this I know this doesn't matter so much, but my theory is that um, great trauma uh, generates great art. Um, yeah. <laughs> some of these people, I bet, have a moment where you're thinking, wow, they could do this. Is that true? Yeah, and I would say, yeah, trauma could produce maybe very intense art, um, emotional art. Um, I had, I can give you an example of someone who just came, and um, she she was in our last IOP cohort, and she hadn't done any art since elementary school, and it took her a little bit to get started, which it sometimes does, so I let them know, like, that's no big deal, take your time to get started. And she ended up making, we, I, um, Benny's donates a lot of cigar boxes to us. They make great art therapy objects. So um, 
she got a cigar box and worked for a few days, and I couldn't really tell what was going on. She kind of got in the zone once she started and ended up making a milk carton. Do you remember the milk cartons with the missing kids on the, sure. on the side? Sure, Yeah. So it said missing, and then it had a mirror um, so that when she looked at it, it was herself. Wow. She feels like because of the, the trauma, she's been missing a piece of herself. And then on the inside, she put a face. Uh, um, they usually work on with masks. Um, with different layers of cloth to show that while she was here, she was peeling off these layers of herself and getting to her true self. And I just thought that was amazing. And and so this woman hadn't done art uh, maybe 20 years. It was beautiful. This must be satisfying for you. So satisfying. I joke during the first day when I give them a rundown of the, the group that I have the best job here. Sometimes they, like, chuckle. And then by the end of the two weeks, they're like, you do have the best job here. <laughs> um, so, so what about the other what, what about the other part of the spectrum here? People that are just, Stephanie, I just can't draw. They just can't do it, and they get <laughs> yeah. frustrated. And what about that? Yeah. Yeah, that happens a lot at the very beginning. And I just kind of approach that, and I, yeah, I get it. You haven't done it for a long time. Let's check in on where that frustration is coming from or the fear Um, and they don't have to draw i've got maybe a different variety of art materials than you would see like in a fine art studio so um i've got objects they can glue to their masks um fabric collage materials so so you don't really have to be a skilled painter or um drawer um, to, to produce something. So sometimes I just say, well, let's just get started. Just paint, paint a single color on the mask or the box or just rummage through the art materials and see what, what looks good to you. And usually that gets them started to where they, they can make something. I want to come down there. I had the, I had the same, I I had the (laughs) same feeling last time we talked. Um, but you know, uh, listen, my theory is that a therapy is something most of us can benefit from. And, oh uh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you don't, yeah. you don't have to be crazy to be uh, in the uh, shrink's office or whatever I say. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, no, it's helpful for everyone, I think. But yeah, I mean, uh, um, that uh, that leads me to think that uh, many of us could, you know, get something out of sitting down and articulating our, you know, our thing in art. But listen, I'm, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm Mr. Hard on myself. I think most people are. And and I and I'm sure that I would say, geez, I can't operate this. I can't operate that. Some of the stuff that you've got, you know, they're probably for you to pick up a brush or something else. So, uh, would you make it simple on people, or how's that work? Yeah, it's really up to the individual. Um, every person who comes into the IOP does the same art therapy directive. It's it's a mask, and I might have talked about this last time. Um, on the outside, they depict. Who, who they show the world or how the world sees them. And on the inside, it's their um, private self, the self that they may not show other people. So it's like a public private self. Um, but then I say, you know, that's the idea. And then if you're feeling something else, go with it. Yeah. Um, like if the art process takes you somewhere else, then please go with it. And, and they can change it up or add to or do what it do. Just follow the art process wherever it goes. Stephanie, you sound nice. 
I don't. I hope so. Wait, and and I use that word gingerly. Um, Can you hang on for thirty seconds? We're gonna we're gonna look at the ocean. Then I'm gonna come back. We'll talk more. This is Stephanie Clark, an art therapist, this morning. Can you hear that? The oceans are talking to us because they need our help. They're in trouble, but we can help them by winning victories against overfishing, pollution, and more. We need our oceans. Oceans could help feed more than a billion people and are home to most of the life on the planet. Visit Oceana.org and join the campaign today because everyone can be an ocean hero. It's quarter before the hour from Chicago. It's the Chicago Radio Pirates program. It's Gary Lee Wright and Stephanie Clark, who is our, well, I guess, Stephanie, you've been on twice now. You could be a resident, right? You can yeah, listen. why not? That's Sign fun. me up. Anybody that's been on more than once, uh, you're a regular. Um, Stephanie is as an art therapist, which is a line of work that not many of us know too much about. Stephanie, did um, I, I'm gonna? Add, I have no way of checking your your math on this. Are you a pretty good artist yourself? <laughs> um, I would say that I'm I'm pretty good. I dabble in quite a few things. So you know that saying like uh, jack of all trades, master of none. Right. Um, I would say I'm more of a jack of all trades when it comes to art. Um, but that, and the, and the reason why art therapy is cool is because that bleeds into other areas. So I would say I'm also just like really handy and detail oriented and that comes from practicing art. Um, so yeah, I'm good at, I'm good with my hands. Do some, do your clients, um, do they, uh, do something and then the next day they have a mood swing and want to throw it away? Yes. Do they? And and how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? (laughs) Um, I will first, I would just kind of chat with them about what's going on and why and if if we can turn the art into something else I might encourage that because if they want to throw it away because they don't like it let's talk about that um if they want to throw it away because it is an image that is really hard for them to see um then I want to talk about that and then ultimately they they can throw it away if they want but in the beginning I tell them this is you know, the biggest difference between art therapy and then art, fine art, is that the art is not, the purpose of making it is not to hang in a gallery. And so um, they can, they can throw it away, they can blow it up, they can bury it in the ground. Um, and so sometimes that's a part of the process. So if that is a therapeutic part of the process, then, then I would tell them to go for it. I think if you had taught Van Gogh, things would have worked out better for him. <laughs> Andy Gersten joins us from wherever he is. Andy, hello. Good morning. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm yeah, really good. Glad to see the sun out. I know. As always. I know. I feel I feel good too. Uh, Andy is a realtor, which is the hardest word in the radio to pronounce. R e a l t o r, and it has a little uh, sign next to it, like a copyright thing usually. Um, which I can't do. It's realtor. All right. Anyway, Annie is here, and uh, we're we're going to talk about um, um, a couple of things. I want to talk about the general economy, which is looking pretty good. But um, the uh, the 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 fundamental question I have for you: How how's the housing market? Are are people getting out there? Are they buying stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's we've we've been solidly busy for the last twelve months. In fact, interestingly, and we talk about this a lot, at least amongst uh, my own, my associates, people I work with, is 
we had we had kind of lost the seasonality of our market, which were the you know the ebbs and flows of of the time of the year, uh, spring being busier, maybe fall being a little slower, and it just maintained its pace all all the way through uh, the middle of last year until the beginning of summer. And I'm only we are only now noticing a little bit more of a seasonality falling back into place with slowing down, tempering just a little bit right now. But overall, it's very, very strong. Um, you know that there's been an eviction moratorium, um, I think in California is one state that uh, that stands out here. And here in the Chicago, Lori Lightfoot is planning to build more housing in Chicago. So uh, theoretically, everybody should have a place to live, you think? We hope. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's interesting. I can really only speak to the markets that I work in, but uh, even the areas where I see high-end rentals, I'm just astonished at how quickly they're able to fill all these new buildings they're building downtown, the prices they're getting. And I just wonder where everyone is coming from that is paying these prices. And we have a problem with affordable housing. It's certainly in some of the downtown markets. And I have a building out in, in uh, in the humble Palmer Square area. And I'm seeing the same thing starting to happen there. A lot of buildings are improving. Prices are going up. And the affordable rents are disappearing. Hmm. But uh, so I don't know how that's going to play out. But it's been something that uh, that's been talked about a long for a long time. This is Andy Gersten, G E R S T E N, and I'll give you his website in a moment or two. So, so Andy, let me just uh, process all that. So, on one level, we've got um, money. Money is pretty loose, right? The interest rates interest rates are favorable. Um, and and that translates to good things for somebody buying property, but the rents are still high. Yeah, is that what I got out of what you said? Uh, yeah, and we're we're actually seeing a bit of a tipping point now, where the rents are getting to the point where it's pushing people back into the buying market. Hmm. And we we weren't quite there. Uh, maybe a few years ago, it was fairly even, or maybe maybe leaning the other way. But now I'm seeing a lot of people looking at these massive rents they're paying and realizing they can buy something. Uh, that being said, prices are continuously increasing. We've seen probably some of the strongest growth, I think, in the last couple of years. And um, that coupled with uh, very, very low inventory, it's, it's, it's created very t- a tight market for a lot of people. So let's do it. Uh, I, I mean, this, it's, it's hard to do this on numbers on the radio, but let's, let's, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll put on a casual, put on my casual shirt here and I'll put on my slip-ons. So let's, let's, uh, let's get into the minds and, and money of uh, somebody who's, I don't know, younger than, than, than me, for example, that's almost everybody. Um, but they're looking, they're paying rent, and um, they're saying, "Well, you know, we really should buy something." How how do they how do they figure all that out? Is it a matter of uh, give me some give me some formulas here? Well, there's everybody has a bit of a different perspective. Brokers will, of course, you know, tell you to to go to your maximum. But a lender, uh, and lenders are willing to loan at, at very high ratios. I've seen them allow buyers to go to anywhere from thirty to thirty five percent of their gross income towards housing and i feel like you unless you absolutely are really that's all you that's all you your price so low you can't afford anything else you really have to push it to the edge then we talk about that because it's going to come from somewhere else it's going to come from going out uh you know whatever your quality of life things will be 
But for the most part, if you can keep it around 25, maybe to 30% for your whole housing payment all in, you're going to be in a good place. And lenders will like those ratios very much. And a real good rule of thumb, generally speaking, with these interest rates, for every $1,000 you spend, it costs about $4 in a mortgage payment. Hmm. So that's just a real quick kind of do it in your head. But there's so many great apps out. If you just go to Google and try, type in mortgage uh, calculator, it'll pop up. You, you type in your purchase price, your down payment, your interest rate, and, the, and you'll get your housing payment. So the idea is that um, and I, I, when I, the first time I looked into this was, was a million years ago. The idea was that you were, you were supposed to spend in those days, and I was kind of a kid. Um, theoretically, 25% of your salary on rent. So yeah. you're, you're saying it's the same number, only it's a mortgage payment now, theoretically. Well, well, and with mortgage payments, you can sometimes go a little bit higher because you have a lot of benefits to owning a home. You can deduct certain things, uh, portions of your, depending on your income level or your taxes. A lot of those things can be deducted. So that sometimes offsets those costs. So sometimes if, you're, if you say your ratio is at 30%, effectively at the end of the year, you might find it's lower, like 27 or 28, once you pull all those numbers back out. So, uh, but, but, and that's a good way to look at it, I think. To people who do what you do, do you help your uh, buyers shop for mortgages or you, you give Absol- them some? Yeah, some, yeah, do you? yeah ab- absolutely. I have uh, different mortgage brokers I like to work with depending on the person's, you know, personal situation. Some people want more handholding and, and certain mortgage brokers are better at that than others. So it just depends on, on what your circumstance is. Uh, you'll find though most lenders are going to be neck and neck with interest rates. Yeah. If they're so, so low, if you find an eighth of a point variation, I'd be surprised. Why are they so low? Because there's a lot of money? I guess it's like anything else. If there's a lot of potato salad and potato salad is uh, cheap. You, Same idea? You know, everybody has a different perspective on that. It's mostly tied into the bond market. So if you watch the bonds, the, the, bond, the bond rates... When the bond market goes up, you'll see interest rates kind of start to tip down. Yeah. But I think it's a supply and demand thing. Yeah. You know, if 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 all of a sudden our market starts really gets quiet, you'll see interest rates more attractive. As it starts to get busier and there's more demand, maybe the 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 lenders can push that a little bit. And we saw a lot of fluctuation in the spring. There were days where I would get emails from lenders that would reprice their loans four or five times in one day. Wow. So it's just with that kind of, you know, one day it was, you know, under three, the next day it was at three and a half. That's a, and these big, big swings. So this, that probably was tied more into the, the bond activity. This, this sounds exciting. I, I know, because I went through this, as you know, you and I did this. This is Andy Gersten, G-R-S-T-E-N. Andy, I'm going to get us some sort of a website or something before we get out of here from you um, so I can have people call you. Maybe, maybe have a cup of coffee before they call you, but soon today. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I know Andy well, and I ask him all kinds of stuff. Andy, but I, I think that these are, they're simple questions, and yet they're complicated answers, yeah? Yep, exactly. And, and I also find that there's so much to know that uh, we kind of have to take it slowly. And I tell that to my clients a lot, that I won't dump all of this on you at once. As you start the process, You'll understand what the questions are, and you can you can the answers can fall into context for you. So you'll understand how they apply rather than hearing it all at once. There's a lot to know, and I guess because I do it every day, it comes naturally. But if you don't, it, it 
certainly doesn't. So well, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot going on. Of closing of nobody's nobody's ever bought a piece of property. Um, let's do a closing, Andy. You ready? You're in this big room, and you keep writing checks, and and people keep saying, "Now this one, this one, this one." Right? I mean, that's the end of that's the end of the process. And, well. It, it kind of is, but these days you don't write the check. So yeah. Yeah. You, you you wire it in, and you're and interestingly with COVID, a lot of our closings are what we call flash closings. So you actually sign a lot less sitting at a table like in the old days. Yeah. It 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 feels a little easier, a little anticlimactic, I think. Actually, can I get into Bitcoin on this one? Well, will any of your? I don't know about that. <laughs> I have not yet to to stick my toe in the water on that one. Yeah. I'm curious about it, but I don't know. Can you buy a house with Bitcoin? I, I'm a, I'm I'm asking you. Well, but uh, we, I don't know. we could theoretically. I mean, I'm just uh, hypothetically. It's like if any if 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 there's a buyer that's got a piece of property and he's asking, you know, cash, and we come up and say, well, it's instead of cash. We'll give you, you know, X and whatever those are. I mean, that would be an interesting thing to propose, right? It would be. Yeah. What exactly is Bitcoin? Uh, I, I still need an explanation. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a crypto, it's a cryptocurrency, which is crypto. I think is Latin for hidden, and um, it, it's uh, it's a virtual, um, it's a virtual currency. So just don't know where I can spend the Bitcoin. Yeah, well, uh, we'll help I you, you with that. Buy, I know you can buy a. I think you can buy a Tesla with it. Yeah, you can. <laughs> He'll take it. <laughs> we're, we're, Aaron Mittens is, is on my video screen. Aaron, are you listening to this? Say, Aaron, say yes, hi. Yes. To, say hi to Andy Gersten here. Hey, Andy, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Aaron is not only the man who keeps explaining Bitcoin to me, but he is the person that will tell you whether or not you should buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. We've been <laughs> so we've been dealing with that. So unfortunately, they don't take it anymore. No. Yeah. So Aaron, you're a young man. Um, questions about uh, real estate? Are you you want to own something, right? At some point. Yeah, I've been looking. I've been looking for a rental property. Don't know if I want to do that. Um, Getting a mortgage at this age, when I'm thinking about stretching that out 30, 40 years, seems like it makes sense. Yeah. But um, I was wondering, is now the good time to buy? I've been hearing like anecdotal stories that a lot of the banks are buying up a lot of the properties now, increase or inflating the prices. Is that true or is that just hearsay? I mean, I haven't seen that. I'm uh, you know, and I'm pretty immersed in the Chicago market. I am not getting calls from banks trying to buy property. I get you know random emails from random people offering you know random numbers, but those I just that's just not real. I I know that the banks uh, and from what the people I've spoken with who are a little bit more immersed in that that they do own a lot of real estate, but um, uh, it's just not in the markets at least that I'm working and. You know, I hear people say, well, you know, is it a good time? Is it not? But uh, if you find a good property that with these interest rates that you can hold in place for the entire time you're going to own it, for a lot of people, that can make, make or break it. We like it when our audience is part of the show. Please feel free to send us an email at radioanything at gmail.com or you can just send us a toll-free voicemail 24-7 at 844-220-3300.
Please share a thought with us and we will listen to you here on the radio. And don't forget to join us Monday through Friday at Spleet.network. Thank you. Half past the hour here, it's the Chicago Radio Pirates program. It's Gary Lee Wright, and a real treat for me. And I, I, uh, I wanted to talk about elephants. You know, I don't know anything about elephants, but there is an elephant sanctuary uh, in Tennessee, in Ho- Hohenwald, Tennessee. And uh, we have the, uh, we have the, I believe the director on here. His, uh, his, his name is Todd Montgomery. Hey, Todd, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, coming on. What did you? I, I was going to misidentify. Uh, do you have a title? Are you the director of the uh, sanctuary, or what? what? Not, not quite. I'm actually the uh, the outreach manager. So I'm, I'm one of the one of the managers here. But I oversee a lot of our education work, our development work, and of course teaching people about elephants, which is what we're what we're here for today. The uh, elephant sanctuary is in Hohenwald, Tennessee. Where is that near? Hohenwald, Tennessee. It's it's about not about it is 85 miles southwest of, of Nashville in, in lovely um, rural southern middle Tennessee here. So Hohenwald's actually a, a German word that means high forest, owing to some of the um, German ancestry of our of our region here. So it sounds a lot like hole in the wall. We we get that a lot, but it's actually Hohenwald. Yeah, we'll we'll correct them, Todd. We won't let yeah. them get by with it. So um, I know that elephants are not indigenous to North America. So. Um, the elephants that you're looking after, um, they uh, came over here how? Yes, yeah, so that is correct. Uh, we know if we, if we go back far enough in time, some of the elephant ancestors did live here in, in North America. We had mammoths and then mastodons and all that good stuff. But uh, our, our modern or our extant species of elephants are, are not native to North America. Our sanctuary is set up to care for elephants that are retired from performance and exhibition. Uh, so there have been thousands of elephants that have been uh, imported to uh, North America going all the way back to 1796, I believe. Elephants that have been brought to the country from the wild to serve as entertainers in some instances, as performers, and certainly as educational aids in, in zoos and, and museums. So our facility is set up as a home for all uh, or any captive elephants in North America uh, once it is time for them to retire and come live with us in our, our 2,700 acres here in Tennessee, where um, hopefully they can um, act and, and feel more like wild elephants. So Todd, Todd, it's not natural for animals to perform, I would not think. I just told the story of having, they, they kind of forced me to ride an elephant into a, a thing once. Uh, they don't sure. like that. And, and, I've, and I've talked to people, you know, worked in that uh, background. Um, what about that? Um, that, that they, they, that's not what they naturally want to do. Sure. I, I think the place to start is, is by recognizing that elephants are uh, these immensely intelligent animals. And, and beyond that, we, we believe, and, and science seems to bear this out, that they possess a, a very wide range of, of emotions and, and moods and, and feelings. And um, they have a very complex and complicated way of interacting with the, the world around them. And then um, to, to take that animal with, with all of those complexities and then to have them engage in activities that are so very different than what they would do in the wild. You know, it's in, in the wild, a, a wild elephant is not going to allow a human to, to, to ride it. And like any wild animal, they would regard humans with either, you know, fear, of course, and or the, the need to, to protect against this outsider. So I think where, where we look at, at the situation is, just the entire, in, in many cases, asking elephants to perform, asking them to do tricks, asking them to follow human uh, commands or, or to be enclosed in small spaces or, or to, to travel for long distances in the back of a, of a truck or a train car is just very, very, very unnatural. And, and we think unhealthy, both in terms of, of an elephant's physical 
health and also their, their mental and psychological health. This is Todd Montgomery. Todd is from the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee, which uh, has a website. It's elephants.com, and we're talking to him live this morning. Todd, I saw a video. It was a short video, and it really um, it really moved me. It was a it's a video of some elephants, probably in Africa, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, one of the members of the herd had died, and um, the elephants. This was the damnedest thing I ever saw. They they surrounded this this their their fallen um, comrade, and and did kind of a procession around. Mm-hmm very much like a human funeral. I'd never seen anything like that before. And um, to your point about spirituality and their intelligence and all that, um, it blew me away. But but you would know that that's the way they are, right? Yeah, and, and I do think that, uh, and again, I, I, I say we as in the people that, you know, study elephants and, and try to be versed in these things, but uh, th- there does seem to be some uh, scientific consensus that elephants are part of a very small group of animals, and I'll include uh, human beings in this, that do seem to have some concept and curiosity around mortality. Uh, we think that elephants do understand uh, and, and, and know that death comes at the end of life, and they're, they're curious about that when it happens, and they do seem to have, it's been observed in the wild time and time again, they do in some cases seem to have what almost might be described as nearly ritualized uh, behavior when it comes to regarding the the body of a deceased elephant. So um, I, I will tell you at our facility, when we have an elephant that passes away, which which you know sadly does does happen from time to time, um, we give the other elephants an opportunity to, to be able to, to see and to touch the body so that they can process what has happened in, in hopefully a, a more natural way, because we think that's important. We think that the elephants need that closure of knowing that this, this other life has come to an end as a opposed to just um, disappearing. We would call it a wake in, uh, in, in, in human uh, activity. Todd, I, think, what, I think that's applicable, yeah. What, what, have, what, have, you, have, have you learned a whole bunch of stuff since you started doing this, or did you come into it with knowledge? or What are some of the things about elephants that um, are, are new to you? Yeah, I think when I started in this position, I probably knew as much about elephants as your as any other, um, you know, as as you more than likely. But I, I've learned so much since I started working here. And um, what's amazing is the the more you the more you learn, and I guess you could say this with any you know realm of knowledge. The, the more you learn, the more you realize what you what you don't know, or, or the more that you realize that you would like to learn. So um, what I've learned about elephants that has amazed me is one, just in some cases. Um, the the depths of uh, of human cruelty that they, they can be shown towards these amazing amazing animals um, with whom we share the planet uh, and also at the same time just the amazing intelligence of these animals um, we we've, we've seen now and again research has shown that elephants can differentiate the diff- they can tell the difference between spoken human languages an elephant can hear and can uh, can sense the difference in a human speaking english and swahili for example wow. we know that we know that elephants can recognize the voices of other elephants that they haven't heard in some cases for 10 or, or 20 years we know that elephants have demonstrated a capacity for, for memory. Uh, the matriarch of a herd in a time of drought, she may well remember a watering hole that her uh, her grandmother took her to 30 years prior. So they, they really are, um, there, it seems like their brains and their minds obviously work in very different ways than that of humans, but I think there, there, there are some comparisons that can be made from one highly intelligent animal to another. The one cliche that we all uh, start with is uh, an elephant never forgets. Um, and you just told me that that apparently is true. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, again, it's it's very hard, and and gosh, I I wish we could just ask an elephant, like, what what's the earliest thing that you remember? Just start at the beginning and then yeah. tell us, but we we can't. So all we can do is observe, and I'll tell you the the example that that we've seen here uh, firsthand. Um, we had a, an elephant uh, retire uh, to our facility back in 1999. She came from a, uh, um, a a wonderful zoo in Monroe, Louisiana, where she was loved and cared for, um, and a, a big part of their community. But it was it was a smaller zoo. They didn't have a lot of space, and so they decided it would be better for Shirley this elephant's name to, to come and live with us. And when Shirley arrived, she was greeted by the other elephants, and there was uh, another elephant named Jenny who had arrived uh, a year uh, preceding Shirley. And when these two elephants saw each other and smelled each other and touched one another, they had a very, what I would call, emotional reaction, much more so than would be expected for two elephants meeting each other for the first time. We went back and we reviewed their ownership records and their, their transfer documents and who had been where, and turns out these two elephants, Shirley and Jenny, had actually worked together in the same circus 26 years prior Jeez. to being reconnected here at the sanctuary. So in that instance, there, there's not a doubt in my mind or anyone else's that those two elephants absolutely remembered one another from over you know nearly three decades prior. That's unbelievable. How, uh, what's the lifespan in general of an elephant? A healthy elephant can expect to live into her uh, late 50s, uh, sometimes deep into her 60s. I just mentioned Shirley. Uh, sadly, Shirley passed away earlier this year, but she was 72 at the time that she passed, wow. which is very, very old for an elephant. But they, they just like, you know, sometimes humans can live to be 100 or beyond. Sometimes elephants can live deep into their, their 70s or their, their 80s even. Um, do elephants um, live longer in, I don't, I, I guess I was going to say captivity. Sure. They're, they're not really captive with you all, but. Well, we, we actually, we're, we're very honest in using the term captivity. The, even with our sanctuary, even with all that we try to provide with our, you know, 2,700 acres of space and allowing the elephants to, to exercise choice in what they do, it's still a man-made condition. As you started off by saying, elephants are not, are not from Tennessee or the United States. So even as, as much as we want this to feel like a natural uh, fit for the elephants, it's, it's, it's not really. We're still sort of a, an abnormality. Um, but to your question, historically, elephants have not lived um, or they've lived shorter lives in captivity uh, than in the wild. But one huge, huge asterisk or, or caveat to that is there's such a problem in the wild of elephants not or, or of elephants dying of unnatural causes, I should say, because of the, the poaching pandemic in, in Africa, because of habitat loss. It's very, very hard to compare life spans in captivity to the wild because they're just they're so very very different situations and i should say that there are many captive situations in the u.s including at the elephant sanctuary including the many wonderful um uh, association of zoos and aquarium accredited facilities where these elephants are receiving uh, incredible veterinary care uh, and uh, where their welfare is a top priority and they, they are living longer we are seeing longer lifespans in captivity so we're we're all learning and, and trying to help one another out and it's all in the name of giving these elephants the, the best life possible you know we've reached a point of, of something here when they're when they're living longer and doing better in, in, in captivity than they do in the wild um, um. Uh, you recreate their habitat how well we again it's and i I, i'll be very clear in saying that that what we are creating here is is nowhere near what the elephants should or or would have in their native habitats in uh, africa and asia but uh, what we do here at the sanctuary is again we have these vast areas of just 
Tennessee is the best way that I would describe it, where we have forests, we have fields, we have lakes, we have streams, uh, we have all different types of plants that, that grow naturally uh, from which the elephants can forage. And the most natural thing that we try to provide for them is the opportunity um, to choose where they want to spend their time. If, if, they, if, if an elephant wants to go for a swim in the lake, that's, that's up to her, that's fine. If an elephant wants to lie down and take a nap in the forest midday, that's up to her. That that's totally fine. So really, that's the 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 wildest thing I think that we can offer them is to give each elephant the the autonomy and the ability to choose what she wants to do with which with um, which elephant that she would like to socialize and to sort of work on her own, uh, is, not work or to, to to do what she likes on her own schedule. This is fascinating. Tom Montgomery is on the phone here. Tom is uh, from the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee. Their website is elephants.com. And, you know, we, uh, we talk about, like, rescue cats and rescue dogs sure. and things like that. Um, your, uh, your constituents are uh, rescue elephants, by and large, right? Some of them are. Uh, we, we do have elephants that live with us that have come from situations that really were deplorable. And, and again, you can go to elephants.com and you can read their biographies. Um, it, some of these elephants have lived lives where they really were treated with um, neglect and, and in some cases outright abuse. But at the same time, we have elephants here. I gave the example of Shirley a moment ago who were treated with, with love and, and compassion and kindness. And, and I don't know that I would think of, of an elephant like Shirley as needing to be rescued per se. Rather, um, I used the term retirement earlier. I, I think you could think of the elephant sanctuary as a, a retirement home for elephants, and that might be a more, a more apt comparison. You know, when people talk about elephants, you're always talking about the female elephants, surely. I'm assuming, yeah. I'm assuming there are male elephants, but is there, is there yeah, a? There are, and yeah, and it's it's a pattern of habit because we 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 only have female elephants here at our sanctuary. So I I notice whenever I talk talk about elephants, I usually use the term you know she or her just because that's what I'm I'm most used to. Uh, in captivity in the United States, historically there have been more female elephants because generally they're. Uh, a little bit smaller. Um, they can be socialized better in groups. Although we are seeing more and more male elephants in captivity, there have been, uh, you know, there's more male elephants have been born in captivity. But uh, here at our sanctuary, we we only have female elephant elephants currently. So that's that's why I've been using the term she so much. And 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 smarter than the male elephants, as in human beings by and large, right? So I, I, I don't think I know enough to argue that point. So I'll just I'll leave it alone. <laughs> okay. Um, the um, uh, you have elephants that have had uh, injuries or diseases. What about that? Uh, yes, of course. Um, I think probably the, the the most obvious and the one that that we really see on an everyday basis is there are lots of um, uh, lots of uh, illnesses and conditions that probably come from having elephants. Um, perform such a such an unnatural set of activities over the course of their life if you have we'll use an elephant um let's say you have an elephant who spent much of her life as a circus elephant much of her life giving uh giving rides and let's say a lot of those rides take place in in, in parking lots or gravel or whatever well if you gary you know if you spend all day standing or walking on asphalt by the end of the day you're going to feel that in your ankles and your knees and in your hips Imagine if you weighed 10,000 pounds. That's yeah. a lot of impact. That's a lot of pressure on your joints, on your feet, on your on your your toes with every step that you take. And with these elephants, we see as they get older, we think that all of that impact, all of that wear and tear does seem to generate 
um, a lot of conditions, whether it's arthritis or um, osteomyelitis is another one we deal with, lots of itises, um, inflammatory, um, painful conditions that we think arise from these elephants spending so much time having their bodies engaged in unnatural activities. So we spend a lot of our time uh, working with the elephants, trying to, to mitigate some of those uh, situations. In many cases, when the elephants arrive here, when they retire, they already come with those conditions and, uh, and illnesses that we try to treat. Uh, another big one that we see is tuberculosis. Um, we've learned that tuberculosis can be um, uh, can be spread uh, in the captive elephant population. The same strain as tuberculosis uh, as can affect humans, um, and we know that there that TB is an issue within the captive elephant population in the United States. We've had a number of elephants who have retired here having been exposed to TB. We, we've treated those elephants. We've learned a lot about the treatment of TB in elephants, and we've shared that knowledge, and we've learned from others, absolutely. But um, dealing with, uh, with tuberculosis exposure is certainly a part of life for anyone um, working in the, the captive elephant industry. You know, it was just recently that uh, Ringling Brothers, uh, Barnum and Bailey, uh, got out of the uh, elephant business within the last couple of years. And listening to you talk, I, I don't know, we, um, we became, uh, I don't know what the word is, um, sort of anesthetized. To, to, I talked about the story of me, me riding an elephant into a thing. And sure. the, uh, the elephant obviously hated it. I was nervous. Um, right. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure when we stopped thinking of these uh, as living uh, things, you know, as living beings. So, and I, you know, I, I don't have to tell you that, but I think from, you know, from uh, the civilian's perspective, it's, it's different. Now, even in uh, the elephant sanctuary, people cannot, they can't hang out with the elephants down there, right? That, that's correct. And that is something I should be really clear in stating. So I, I used, the, again, I'll keep repeating this. I used the term retirement earlier. The elephants here are retired from, from public view. When, when they come and live with us, our, uh, our philosophy and our mission is to give those elephants, hopefully, a little bit of, of peace and quiet and, and privacy and to be able to live the rest of their, hopefully, very long lives in a space that is truly just for them, where there's not a lot of spectators around. Um, we think that in many of these elephant situations, they probably would rather not have a lot of people around. Having lots of people around may very well conjure up unpleasant memories or, or feelings, and we don't, we, we just, we don't want that yeah. for these elephants for their time here. So what we do have, and something that we're very proud of, is we have live streaming cameras set up throughout the 2,700-acre habitat where you can go on to, to elephants.com, you can click that button that says Ellie Cam, and you can watch the elephants in real time uh, from the comfort of your of your smartphone or your office or your uh, your home work area, um, wherever you may be. You can watch the elephants along with us, and you can observe them demonstrating some of their um, almost wild sanctuary behavior. I think that's a good way to put it. You are listening. To the Bleat Network. This is Bleat.